And if you have your Bible, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. As I mentioned already, we'll be looking at a special promise uh, today, which is the third one we've, we've been looking at. We looked at a relationship of promises to faith uh, in one of the earlier sermons. We've looked at the, um, the promise of eternal life, which God has granted us. We've looked at the promise of the Holy Spirit, which he, he has given to us. And now we are looking at the promise of his coming. Second okay? Peter chapter 3, and we'll read for verses 1 to 13 this morning. Once again, a special welcome to our visitors who are here. Please stay back. We'd love to spend some time with you after the service. Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1. The second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Saviour. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that, was, that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire, against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burnt up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being and on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and this time to him. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your love toward us, and we thank you that you have expressed this love to us through your word. We thank you that we have this word within, within our hands right now, and we ask that we would honour this word, that we would believe it fully with every fibre of our being, and that we would seek to live it within our lives. We thank you that the pure milk of your word helps us to grow, and it helps us to mature into the image of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Bless us now as we seek to learn from you. May your spirit be our teacher this morning. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I mentioned already, we've been looking at uh, the promises of God over the last few weeks, and and eventually these are going to uh, we're going to go into broader and broader sort of topics. But I wanted to start off with the three main ones the Bible or the New Testament specifically speaks about, which which was eternal life, the Holy Spirit, and the coming of the Lord. So essentially, that covers salvation and the uh, the lordship of Jesus Christ. Um, Part of that was we looked at the relationship between faith and promises. Remember I gave you an example that if someone that you didn't fully trust came to you and made you a promise, you'd probably be reluctant to take that promise up. You'd look at it and say with a bit of a sceptical eye, all right, if I have to commit to this, what am I risking to actually get this promise fulfilled? And if the person on the other side is making you a promise is not trustworthy, it's going to be unlikely you're going to believe that promise, are you? But because God is fully trustworthy, because God has the wherewithal to, to fulfill every promise that he makes, we have every should have every confidence that we can believe every promise that he's made. And that comes from the beginning of Genesis right to the end of Revelation. Okay, The Bible is full of promises, full of things that God says, I will do this, or I will give this, or I even I am this, or will be this. 
Um, and we should have every, as his children, we should have every confidence and faith that God will fulfill those promises. And this promise we're looking at today is his, concerning his second coming. Not necessarily the rapture, but his second coming. Okay. And as I mentioned before, uh, during the Lord's table, when, when, when you read those words, you know, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What it's essentially asking is that this kingdom from heaven would come down to the earth. And that that kingdom would reign upon the earth. So when we pray, if you ever pray the Lord's Prayer directly or indirectly, um, that's what you're actually praying for. The physical return of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you may say within your heart, or you may be questioning, hang on, but didn't Jesus say the kingdom of God is within you? Yes, he did. Because as his children, the kingdom of God is within us. You see, God has given us his very nature. God has made us his, his children. So we belong to heaven now. We belong to him and we represent a different kind of person. Remember, God made you a new creature, a new creation in him. We're no longer the same. We, God, we are no longer bound to the earth. In fact, the Bible says that we are strangers and pilgrims in this place, realizing that it's only temporary. So we are, as, as the Apostle Peter says here, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth. Do we? Are we looking for a new heavens and a new earth? Or are we too comfortable here? And that's my first question to us today. <coughs> Where the Bible says that we should not be so comfortable as to tie ourselves down heavily in, the, in this place because eventually it's all going to go. It's all going to be dissolved, as Peter says. Where the world was once judged with water, one day it will be judged with fire. And so he says in verse 3, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. There's a problem in this verse, isn't there? This, the promise is stated. Where's the promise of his coming? The promise is stated in these verses, um, but there's something indicated here. And it's, what's indicated is that the state of the world will be generally different to when these epistles were originally written. That the world will generally find itself in what Peter calls the last days, that there will be people in these last days who will know about the promise. They'll know it. Because you can't ridicule something you don't know anything about, okay? They'll know about this promise, but they'll ridicule the idea of God coming to the earth, of Jesus returning. Peter used the word scoffers. A scoffer is someone who ridicules someone else or some idea. They make fun of it. And this ridicule will be centred on the fundamental promise that God has made to us and to mankind that one day his son shall return to this earth in glory to judge the world and to rule it, to rule it in righteousness. They'll laugh at the idea of Jesus Christ coming in glory because for them Jesus was meek and humble and can only ever be like that. But I want you to think about that for a moment. They know about the promise and they'll make fun of it. And the Bible says that these scoffers are people who, who have chosen just to follow after their own lusts. In other words, whatever their heart takes them, whatever their heart desires, is what they will not hold back from actually taking. And they'll declare the promise to be impossible, not true. That miraculous things like this have never existed. That the world has carried on from the beginning the same way it has today. What we see in the world, they say, is all there is. And that God himself coming to this earth is just pure fantasy. So who would make fun of, and I was thinking about this as I was writing this sermon, who would make fun? Who would ridicule and scoff at the idea of Jesus Christ coming back to the earth? And I'll tell you who it probably isn't. People of other religions. Muslims do not scoff at the idea of Jesus Christ coming back to the earth, because they actually believe he is. Mm -hmm. 
I don't see, I don't believe Hindus are going to be scoffing at it, nor Buddhists or anyone else. No, no, these people are not people, for example, that don't know anything about Christianity. They are not people who are oblivious to Christianity. Buddhists, like I've said, Buddhists, Hindus, don't mock the idea of Jesus coming back to the earth. So what type of person is this? This is a different breed of person. This type of person knows what the Bible teaches. So they, they live in places where the Bible is, uh, is, is not only taught, but as, as a history in that place. They, they are they're aware of them, but they're making fun of a biblical promise. They will know the stories of creation because they say, look, you know, from the, from the right from the beginning, from creation, it's always been the same. There's always been death and suffering and nothing has ever really changed over here. So they probably know the stories of Adam and Eve, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the Exodus, the miracles of Jesus, but they will not consider anything miraculous to be true. Because Peter says they did not believe that the world was destroyed by a flood, by the judgment of God. So they can't believe that he will come in judgment in the end either. So have a think, what type of person has rejected the idea of Noah's Ark and a worldwide flood. Where do we find these people? Here. We find them in the West. We find them in secular countries. Secular countries who may have had a history of Christianity and know the Bible stories. They're aware of them. They're, they're, they have Christians maybe speaking to them who, who are still Bible believers. Now, this is, this is a special type of uh, person that wasn't, I believe, present even in Peter's day. They might look at the Bible as a, as a storybook of nice stories with well-meaning morals, but it's filled with myths. These people are knowledgeable enough to argue with a philosophical argument about the continuity of all things, that things do not change. And for them, God isn't in the picture. So I would argue that these people are probably people who had a lineage of Christianity in their family, maybe going back, or have been brought up, surrounded, maybe by a culture that has had or been influenced by Christian beliefs. Maybe they're people, and I suggest they're people who have fully adopted and believed in the idea of evolution. That we are simply, by pure chance, evolved from lower life forms. And therefore do not believe in a worldwide flood. That's why Peter brings up these words and he says that they are willing, willingly ignorant of the fact that the world has already experienced the judgment of God by water. And because they dismiss the possibility that God could rescue Israel from Egypt with all those miracles. They reject the idea that, that Israel could have walked through the Red Sea with walls of water on each side because they can't imagine how that could work. Have you heard the alternative theories, haven't you? If you've been around for long enough, you know that they'll say, they'll say when it comes to the crossing of the Red Sea, that it wasn't really the Red Sea. It was a lake or something that they were that they were they were crossing, and it, would, it just had dried up. You know what I mean? Couldn't have been the Red Sea. And I'll say, no, 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 it can't be the Red Sea. It must have been somewhere else they crossed. Or they come up with every fanciful thing. Have you heard of this theories of Jesus? Why Jesus? How Jesus could have actually risen on the third day? How many of those are floating around? He didn't really die, but he was revived in the coolness of the tomb. <laughs> How can you be revived after, after going through what he went through and having a spear thrust into your side um, after being beaten and, uh, and nailed to a cross? Um, how can a cruel tomb revive someone? I'd like, I wonder if they could try that, huh? Be revived in a cool tomb. Maybe there should be cool tombs everywhere. We can revive ourselves because sometimes I'm feeling a little bit you know, tired. Go and lie down in a cool tomb for a while and you'll be revived. Wonderful idea. But these scoffers, these people come up with all these fanciful theories, which are actually more difficult to believe than, than just simply believe what the Bible says, um, because they can't possibly believe that there's a God 
who can actually work within the history of mankind. And so because they cannot believe that God interferes in our affairs, you like that? That this God, and I remember having this discussion with a, with a, a lecturer at uni one day, and I was trying to share, I was just a brand new Christian, I was trying to share my faith with him. And he said to me, he goes, oh, he goes, I don't respect the God who, who interferes in human, in human um, you know, history. I said, what do you mean? And he said, I don't, I don't agree with that. He goes, the God I would believe in is a God who just creates and then stands back and watches. <laughs> and just lets us do whatever we want to do. What's amazing about people is they love to come up with their own gods, don't they? They just love it. They'll, they'll create a God, and this is what's symptomatic in our culture, they'll create a God of their own making, and they love that God. They worship that God, because the God that they create is in whose image? Their own. They're their own God, and they haven't quite put that puzzle together. Because they, cre they create and morph this God into whatever image they want. And so they break what the Bible speaks about, that commandment, thou shalt not create an idol unto thyself. So they may not have an idol sitting in their, in their home that they worship, but they've got an idol in here that they carry around with them 24-7. And that idol is in their own image. So this, this type of person knows the Bible stories, probably has a history of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of understanding Christianity to a certain extent, um, but they're, they're so sold to secular thinking that they can't believe that God interferes in our affairs. How dare God interfere in our affairs? This is our world. Uh, last time I checked, if they didn't quite work it out, the Bible says there is a God of this world. And he's got... He's got the whole world enslaved and they don't see it because all they've done, all they've ever had was actually grow up, being born in a prison and growing up in a prison. So when you're born in a prison and you grow up in a prison and you've never seen the outside world and what it's like, you know what you're going to think the world is like? A prison. And you're going to make the best of that prison that you possibly can, not realising that there is someone on the outside who wants to let you free or set you free. These people are epitomised in our day by people who mock the Bible, who make fun of Bible stories, of the creation story, of Noah's Ark. Um, these are people who are either secular in their thinking, atheists, People call them, even people calling themselves Christian, they're probably the worst ones, to be honest with you. Um, but they've abandoned the Bible a long, long time ago. Because they can't believe the Bible, they, they have to cling to something else for their standard of truth, and they, they gravitate to the world. Because if you, if you reject the, the Bible as your source of truth, then the only other place you're going to go to is where? The world. There's no other place to go. Human thinking. So they mock Bible believers. They mock people who could possibly believe. How can you possibly believe that Noah's Ark is true? How can you get all those animals on the ark? Well, God didn't say he got all the animals on the ark. How can you get all those, you know, how can you get elephants on the ark? Well, really, you know, you've seen a... An elephant that's born is only a, a small thing. It's not, it's not that big. You know, they weren't probably that dumb to take on fully grown huge animals. Because you wouldn't want to probably, coming off the ark, you probably wouldn't want to have full grown animals anyway. You want young ones that are going to grow up and mature and actually make more babies, right? So guess what? They probably had younger animals on the ark. But they can't possibly believe it. So they'll look for every argument to try and knock that picture down. God couldn't possibly have done that. God couldn't possibly have judged the world. And so they make fun of people who do believe it. And my prayer is that you're one of those people. My prayer is that you've been mocked. I hope you've been mocked. You know why I hope you've been mocked? Because it would tell me that you actually are happy to be mocked for his name's sake. That you are not hiding what you believe 
but you're happy to express it to other people with no fear. And we should have no fear. This picture of mocking of Bible believers and treating the Bible like a bunch of fairy tales is becoming clearer and clearer in the Western world. If you go back just 50 years ago, and it's been 2,000 years since Jesus rose again from that grave and, and has gone ascended to heaven, but the world today has the, has the face to ridicule the Bible. It didn't have that face 50 years ago. So turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, as Paul now describes for us a similar type of dilemma that's coming in the last days. And the reason I'm talking to you about the last days and the type of people that will be in the last days is because these last days preempt the return of Jesus. Okay, this is like the world's going to be before Jesus returns. And so 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 1 to 5. David, could you give me a glass of water, please? Thank you. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. This passage is not focused on non-believers. It's not. It's not focused on people who haven't heard about Christianity or who don't even believe in God. That's not, it's actually the warning here, I believe, to Timothy is in the last days that these people will infiltrate the actual church. They'll have a form, thank you, brother. They'll have a form of godliness, a form of it. So it will look like they believe in God, but they won't believe that he has the ability to do anything. But they'll deny like in the last verse, having a form of godless but denying the power thereof. God is their God that they serve, even though they may call him God, is powerless. Can't do anything. And so Paul warns Timothy about, I believe he are false Christians coming into the church. That's why it's perilous. It's perilous because these people are masquerading as Christians. They're covetous by nature. They can never have enough. Their egos are too big. They are proud. They're not afraid to take God's name in vain either or slander the truth. They're disobedient to their parents, unthankful for what they have. They don't keep their promises. They blame others and falsely accuse them. They can't control themselves when they get angry. They're vicious by their very nature and take special note. They, they're despisers of them that do good. They hate them. One of, the, one of the, 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 the telling signs is that when they come across someone who loves God and wants to follow the Bible, they hate them. And it shows. They have a form of godliness. They may look and sound convincing, but they don't believe in God or his power at all. To them, God is an idea, a philosophy. Because their God is utterly powerless to judge mankind. You see, their God, and, and, and this is in our culture, it's actually quite prevalent, this belief that God is like this old guy with a beard, long white beard, who just wants everyone to be happy. He's not, he's not powerful. He would, never, he would never hurt anyone or judge anyone. He just wants everyone to be happy. And so what they do, and you've heard this argument, I'm sure, in your past, when people read the Bible, they say, oh, the God of the Old Testament looks so, he looks so angry. He's, he looks like it's a different God. The God of the New Testament's just loving and, 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 and merciful and meek. And you know, he would never, ever judge anyone. Yet the God of the Old Testament looks like he's judging all the time. Hmm. We'll read a passage that's going to, that, that might uh, dispel some of those myths for them in a minute. Um, so 
I believe we are living in the last days. Okay, if you're wondering what I believe, I believe we're living in the last days. I don't know how long the last days are going to um, continue before the tribulation period comes or before we're raptured. Um, I don't know. That's God's. God knows that. But I believe, looking at what we're seeing around us at the moment, is that we are in, a, in an interesting position. Historically, we have a generation growing up at the moment who is almost devoid of Christian understanding. The Bible has been turfed away from many denominations now, and so they've replaced the Bible with a whole lot of other garbage. And the people who, who do believe in the Word of God are very, very few. Not to say that they were ever in the majority, but they're very, very few. Um, I want to share an interesting example. Um, I saw a post on LinkedIn. Does anyone who link, people know who link, LinkedIn is or what LinkedIn is? Okay, so LinkedIn is essentially like a Facebook, but for, for business people, for them to connect with each other and to do business and stuff like that. And so the people put up posts every now and then. I saw an interesting post on LinkedIn the other day which came through, and uh, this fellow wrote an article, uh, and then at the bottom of that article, he had a, a picture of two people um, walking arm in arm down the street. There was a husband and a wife. Um, they were dressed, obviously, and the picture was black and white, so it was a fair while ago, and they were walking arm in arm with masks on down the street, in, I think it was in New York. And he wrote this, um, he wrote this article, listen carefully. He said, imagine being born in 1900, okay, 1900. When, when you were 14 years old, World War I begins and ends when you are 18, four years later, with 22 million dead. Shortly after, the Spanish flu kills 50 million people in the world. Then at the age of 29, you survive the global economic crisis that started with the collapse of the New York Stock Exchange, causing inflation, unemployment, and hunger around the world. You're 39, and World War II begins, and ends when you're 45, with six million Jews dead, and around 75 million people dead around the world during that time. There will be more than 150 million people dead before your 52nd birthday when the Korean War begins, when you're 64, the Vietnam War begins and ends when you're 75. And then he wrote this, a child born after 1985 believes his grandparents have no idea how hard life is. <laughs> a child born in 1995 and 25 today believes that the end of the world is when their Amazon package takes more than three days to arrive. <laughs> or they don't get more than 15 likes on a Facebook post. In 2021, many of us live in comfort, have access to various sources of entertainment at home, and often have more than we ever need. But people complain about everything. They have electricity, phone, plenty of food, hot water, and a roof over their heads. Whereas the vast majority of humanity survived with none of these things for thousands of years. And had to deal with much more serious circumstances than we have seen. But they always found joy in life, he says. These are non-believers who found joy in life, even in the midst of all those turmoils. And then he says, he finishes his quote with, maybe it's time to be less selfish. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you agree with that, what he's just written? Oh, they're all scared to actually answer, aren't they? <laughs> I responded, I actually responded to his post. I don't normally respond to things like that, but I responded to some, because I wanted, to, I wanted just to see what he would say. And I said to him, I feel as if my generation, I was born in 1969, I feel as if my generation and after are living in a bubble compared to the rest of history. Instead of being thankful and seeking to bless others with our wealth and knowledge, we have become more selfish and miserable as a culture. And then I, at the end of it, I put a Bible reference and I wrote Heb, which means Hebrews 13.5. I just, I just wanted to see whether he would actually know what that was. 
he responded amazingly to me. And he says in his response, so, so Hebrews 35 is, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So the Bible says, be content with what you have. Don't live in covetousness. Why? Because God's with you. If God says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, that's all you need, right? So that's what that, the, the phrase of that, that verse means, or the meaning of that verse is. And so the guy responded, which I was surprised, and he said, he says, humans were built, are built on greed. I think he means culture, and our culture is built on greed. And that itself is a daily challenge for us to all overcome. Most of us try to overcome it through the help of family and friends. Others tough it out all alone. And then there are those that follow the true teachings of the verse you have mentioned. And I thought, interesting. What's even more interesting is this fellow's, I think, a Muslim. So maybe another cause for, com for a conversation, okay? Um, we are already living in times when, when unthankfulness, unholiness, self-love and pleasure are the gods that we see being worshipped around us every day. Um, the God of the Bible is less and less worshipped or understood. In fact, people are more comfortable blaspheming God and mocking God and the Bible um, than anything else, than any other time in history. Um, I'm not, did anyone watch Q&A? This past uh, week, okay. So this Q and A. I don't. Look, I don't normally watch Q and A. Right? Q and A is a setup most of the times. They get one conservative on there, or they get one person who sort of believes the truth, and then they'll surround them with with, uh, with people ready to to destroy them. Okay? But anyway, we had on Q and A this week. Um, uh, Martin Illies, I think his name is, or Isles, um, from uh, the Ace uh, Australian Christian Lobby, was on there. And they're all going to ask him questions about LGBT, about um, women's rights, all that sort of stuff. And I thought, worth seeing because, I mean, he probably represents more um, uh, biblical belief than, than a lot of other people do. And they had, they had a, a liberal uh, a senator on there. They had an Aboriginal lady on there. They had a few other people. Anyway, the, the, he was on there, and I thought he answered actually quite well. I think some, some of the questions were almost setting him up, um, but he sort of dodged them pretty well. And I think one of the things we struggle to do as Christians is actually answer properly, because one of the questions that were asked of him was, um, and mind you, the Liberal senator said to him, I'm gay, right? And then he said, am I going to hell? And how do you answer that without actually getting the whole mob worked up who are in the audience, right? And I'm not sure whether he did he actually answer that question. I don't think he. I think he did. I don't think he answered it, but I th he did. What did he say? He Correct. Yeah, that's right. And I think he. I think he answered it quite well from the point of view that he said that God calls us all to repentance, and he said that I'm a sinner who needed to repent and be saved, and you're no different. Essentially, that's what his argument was, and that's really what our argument should be too. If someone comes to you and they and they they declare themselves to be gay or whatever else it may be when they're celebrating a particular lifestyle, your response then really should be, "What makes you so special?" <laughs> why are you special? Like, why do you think that I, I'm thinking about you in particular? The Bible says that any sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman is what? Is wrong, correct? Any sexual activity. So it's not just LGBTQ, whatever they want to call themselves. It's any sexual. So tell me, how much of the population has sex before marriage? and sex outside of marriage and is involved in porn pornography and all those things. What, what percentage of, of the Australian culture do you reckon that is? And do you reckon we're in the majority? Persecuting minority? No, no, no. We actually disagree with everyone because they all do it. They're all doing it. So, so why would I single you out? What makes you so special in all this? 
But at the end of the day, we are called to repent. We are all sinners by nature. And it's not just that sin, sexual sin, which would bring you to hell. It's every other sin. So what makes you so special? You're a subcategory of a one category, a one type of sin. But the Bible says that liars are going to go to hell. It's not just your homosexuality that's going to send you to hell. The fact that you're a liar, the fact that you that you um, uh, don't oh, probably uh, uh, honor your parents, the fact that you actually don't believe in God and, and worship him, the fact that you've probably created an idol, God as well, means you're going to hell. You're probably coveting other things. You're probably everything you're probably doing is breaking God's commandments anyway. So what makes you think you're going to hell just because of that? But see, we live in a culture where all those things are actually normalized anyway. They're all normal. Do, do, do you think people think they're going to hell because they told a lie yesterday? No one believes that in our culture. No one believes they're going to hell because... They, they don't put God first in their life. No one believes they're going to hell because they haven't kept the Sabbath or, they, you know, or they've stolen something or they, they cheated on their tax returns. Or, no one believes that. You think the average person believes that they're going to go to hell because they cheated on their tax return? You see, this is what they don't understand. They are by nature, and we are all by nature sinners. And if, if, I was to, if I was to single out a particular sin of you and then label you with that sin, well, that's really silly, isn't it, when you think of it? I'm a liar. Is God going to send me to hell? Yeah. God's going to send you to hell because there is a judgment that comes. And this is what they can't understand, that a righteous God has shown us amazing love but in the end will have to judge all unrighteousness. Otherwise, he is not a judge. Otherwise, he's not righteous. Because if you leave, if a judge has the opportunity to judge evil or crimes and lets it go, then there's no justice ever in the, in the, in the world or in the universe. But we have a God, the Bible says, who is just, who is righteous, and he will judge the world. And I think what was amazing about that particular Q&A um, uh, episode was that they actually managed, there was one question that came right towards the end of that, in, where this particular woman actually associated biblical Christianity with far-right extremism. So, you know, these people that are far-right people and they hate Jews and they hate blacks and they hate whatever it is, and they want to try and, you know, get back Australia to a white nation. And, and they think they're Christians, these people, right? And they're organising stuff and, and they say they're a problem. I don't know how much of a problem they actually are. But at the end of the day, they're aligning far-right extremists with biblical Christianity. And I would suggest to you that that's not the first time you're going to hear it. Because people don't understand biblical Christianity, because, I don't, because people don't understand the Bible says... To love your enemy, to do good to them that hate you. And to be a proper biblical Christian means you don't raise your sword to anyone. That you actually love the one who hates you. So if someone who's LGBT comes to you and says, well, what about me? I'm called to love you, even if you hate me. And that our sole desire is to see people saved. To want good for them. We've received good. We're okay now, right? So we're, we've been saved. We've received this amazing gift of eternal life. Really, our heart's desire is they would have what we have. Not for them to be judged, but for them to be saved. But I suspect that in the coming days, in the, as the years progress, we will hear more about Christians hating than loving. We'll hear more about Christian bigotry. But we'll hear more about the Bible and how it's wrong and how it needs to be banned. That is inevitable. And so why am I speaking about all this stuff? Because all this stuff that the Bible speaks about the last days is what's coming before the end, is what's coming before he returns. So turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I want, I want to describe, I'll share with you what the Bible says about these last days and what's going to occur. 
And I believe we're seeing a picture of this already. We're seeing an increasing momentum in this direction. What's scary about this whole thing about um, and the word fundamentalist is a pretty nasty word these days, right? So you realise that we're biblical fundamentalists, don't you? If you if you are in this church, you're a member of this church, you are a biblical fundamentalist because you believe in the fundamentals of the Bible. If the Bible says that Jesus walked on water, what do you believe? Jesus walked on water. If the Bible says that Jesus rose from the grave on the third day, what do you believe? He rose again on the third day. The Bible says that God sent his son to die on a cross for the sins of the world. That's exactly what we believe. The Bible says that Jesus was born of a virgin. Guess what? We believe he was born of a virgin. That makes you a biblical fundamentalist. Okay? So wear it proudly. But be aware that as time goes on, that word will become more and more hated. Okay? Because we do not go with the flow of the world. We're not moving in the same direction. And people see you going in the opposite direction. When they're all moving in that direction, it singles you out. And this is what's happening in our culture. Because people who are calling themselves Christians are beginning to attack Christians who believe the Bible. And it's becoming more and more prevalent. Actually, I've got... I've shared with you the night that there are a few wonderful weddings. This year is the year of weddings. It's fantastic. Um, love doing weddings. Um, and it's just fantastic doing a wedding. And there's a couple who, who aren't part of that church but have asked me to perform, perform uh, their wedding. And they're looking for a church around the place. And they went, I think one of them was to the Wesley, I think the Wesleyan Church or the Uniting Church in the city there. And they spoke to um, uh, the minister in that church. And the minister said, and they said, well, can we have our own our own pastor do the, you know, they, they call me, I'm a family friend, right? So they said, can we have our own minister doing the ceremony? And he goes, oh, what denomination is he? And they said, oh, he's Baptist. And he goes, no, I don't think he'll allow it. And, uh, and uh, the fellow said, well, why? He's, he's going to teach only from the Bible. And then the guy's ears he's pricked up from the Bible. Oh, no, he might go teaching something like, you know, that the wife has to submit to the husband. We don't believe that. Well, he might say that marriage is only between, a, you know, a man and a woman. We don't believe that. You're the pastor of a church. <laughs> where, where, where are you getting your beliefs from? No, no, no. He goes, we've put that aside a long time ago, so I can't have anyone at the front of this church preaching the Bible. That's actually what he's saying. You can't preach the Bible in that church. So, and what seems interesting is that those types of people are going to attack more and more in the coming years because they want to associate themselves with the world, you see. We're friends with the world. Whereas, you know, those guys, those crazy biblical fundamentalists, we're, we're against them with you guys. That's what they'll eventually do. Okay, and that's what they're doing already. And so what we're seeing in our culture is what's called a falling away. Okay, so 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, says, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, that's the return of Christ, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, that's the Antichrist, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Before the return of Christ, there has to come a falling away. And then, because of the falling away, the world is ripe to be picked by the Antichrist. Because they, they don't know their Bibles. They don't know that Jesus is meant to return in glory. So he has the wherewithal and the power to convince them that he's Christ. And he'll sit in the temple calling himself God and Christ. But we are in a position at the moment where the world is becoming more and more ripe for a complete falling away. What percentage of the churches do you think at the moment um, have left the Bible? where they were teaching the Bible maybe just 50 years ago, have 
put it to the side and said, no, we don't want that anymore. It's too old for us. I would, I would suggest that the vast majority of churches have already gone that way. We are experiencing, I believe, a falling away in our days. The coming Christ, this promise that we're speaking about, will be preceded by falling away of the faith of churches. Whole denominations will fall and they'll capitulate to the world. And the arrival of the Antichrist, who will deceive the same churches into believing that he is the one. You remember, there are most religions in the world are waiting for, are waiting for Christ. They're waiting for some Messiah to come. Doesn't matter which, which one it is, they're waiting for someone. So there has to be one who actually manages to please all of them, all at the same time. And for that to occur, the church has to be, not eradicated, but has to be neutralised. And that's what's happening now. The church is being neutralised. Or the, what were once churches are being neutralised. So the Apostle argues that we should, well actually in 2 Peter 3a, the Apostle Peter says, 2 Peter 3a, Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the, the Apostle argues that we shouldn't be ignorant of God's timescale. Two thousand years may pass in this world, but two days have passed in heaven. So he's not, uh, he's not slow at doing things. It might be looking a little bit slow on our side, but from our perspective, we should never forget that God always keeps promises. We should never be lulled into a, a false sense of, of foolishness that God is going to, you know, he might not come back in our lifetime. You've got to be prepared that he'll be coming back. Please keep in mind that Peter's letter was, letter was written only 30 years or so after Jesus ascended. Just 30 years after Jesus ascended, in, that, in those days there, and we're now almost 2,000 years after. It's, it, for Peter to say a thousand years is a day, and a day is a thousand years, it, and he only wrote it just in those few years after, I think he already had the idea that there was going to be a thousand years that, that would pass. By the, I think by the inspiration of the Spirit. But he concludes that even though we may see this is a long time, we need to understand that God has a purpose in mind for all things and he wants people to be saved. And the reason that, that he's delaying the coming is because the coming means judgment. No more open grace. And so that's why it says the coming of the Lord is a thief in the night. You know why it's a thief of the night? Because the world and the church will be in darkness. They won't be able to see. And when you don't have the light of the word of God, you only have darkness. Second Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burnt up. I think I might finish it around this point here. Because the next portion of scripture that I'm going to share with you is going to describe what it's going to be like. And I think I'd like to have a whole sermon for that. One of the things we need to understand is, apart from us being in a society now that's lurching more towards atheism, ungodliness and unrighteousness, is that it means that our time that we spend in this world is more and more precious. Who we are in this world, and we often underestimate who we are. And I think the devil does a, a, a bit of a trick on us as well. Because I think he has this, he has us believing this one thing that we are not that important. That we aren't that special. 
that there's nothing really that different about us. So just try and fit in with everyone else. Just focus on living a happy life in this world. And I think he does that to keep us sidetracked from what we're supposed to be doing. Because if Jesus says, no one lights a candle and hides it under a bushel, no one, there's a city on a, on a hill cannot be hid, and that's you and me. The devil would want to hide us because the light that you show to this world illuminates people's understanding. It opens up them understanding what Christianity is really all about, or what the Bible is all about, who God is and, and how much he loves us. Your life can make a tremendous difference. But if we're busy running around chasing after everything in this world, if we're not looking forward to his coming, if we're so busy with our lives that we don't have time for God, we don't have time to share the gospel with people, then the devil's got us wasting our time. And I think that's, that would be a, a shame. And if, I think it will be a shame because one day we all have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And it would be a shameful thing for us to stand before him in the coming days and he looks at us and says, what have you done with your life? And we say, you know what, Lord, I was just really busy. I was really, you know what, I had to you know, buy a house and... You know, when I got married, my wife just consumed so much of my time. <laughs> <laughs> then I had kids, Lord. You know what? My job, my job's so busy. It's so, you know what, Lord, do you really understand how hard my job actually was? Yeah, and then I had to save. And then, you know, well, we had to go on a holiday at least once a year. Do you know what I mean? So we had to save up for that. And so I had to work that extra job to save up the money for it. But, you know, we got a couple of weeks holidays with the family away, which is really good. Um, not saying any of those things are bad. But if all those things is all you're doing, if your first priority isn't God, if he isn't first in your life, then aren't we doing exactly the same that they're doing? Aren't we doing the very thing that that Paul was warning Timothy about? That they were more lovers of pleasure than lovers of God? More lovers of themselves rather than loving God and putting him first. So that's my my admonition to you today. Put him first. Because the time is short. And there's too many people going to hell. You might think that 30 years is a long time. You might think that 50 years is a long time. And if you live to 99 like Prince Philip, you might think that's a really long time. But you know in the scheme of things, it's not a long time. Not when you compare it to eternity after. So let's put in first. Next week we'll look at what the world is going to look like when Jesus returns. God bless you. Thank you.